Welcome to Reframing Our Stories, the podcast. This podcast is about provocative conversations with beautiful thinkers about topics that matter and the stories that have helped them reframe their lives. Grab something cozy or put on your walking shoes and let's reframe. When I was in school studying sexuality, one of the topics that touched my heart deeply was around intersex. Intersex, for those who aren't familiar, is a population of people who are born with a variation of sex chromosomes. This can present differently for many who are intersex. What intersex does is it pushes the concept of binary right out the door. As a theologian, this made me so much more intrigued by gender and sex, and that is why I'm so thrilled to be talking with Megan DeFranza today. She is the author of the book, Sex Difference in Christian Theology, Male, Female, and Intersex in the Image of God, and a contributing author to two multi-view books, Two Views on Homosexuality, The Bible and the Church by Vondervan, and Understanding Transgender Identities with Baker. Knowing that stories are sometimes more powerful than theological arguments and video more accessible than books, she directed the documentary Stories of Intersex and Faith, in which five intersex people share about being born with bodies different than the majority and growing up in various Christian denominations, as well as conservative Judaism. Most recently, she published a video curriculum which combines interview material from the documentary with her own theological research, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, Scripture and the New Science of Gender, now on sale on Vimeo. You can find out more at her website, megandefranza.com and intersexandfaith.com. She speaks at churches, universities, and conferences throughout the U.S. I am so thrilled to welcome Megan to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Did you want to um, describe intersex in more detail for our listeners who are not as familiar Sure. And most of them probably won't be. Most people really have no idea. And that's fine. That's where I was, you know, in my doctoral program when I was researching sex and gender more deeply. I was surprised that differences of sex development happen at many different levels. They can happen at the level of genes, um, chromosomes, not just your typical XX or XY, but um, X. O or XXY, XXYY, and some cells that have one pattern and some cells that have another. It can happen at that level. It can happen at the level of hormones um, where the body produces more, you know, male type hormones in what would be typically understood as a female baby's body or vice versa. Um, Or you have gonads where one is an ovary and one is a testis or it has ovarian and testicular tissue in the same gonad so it can happen at that level can happen on whether or not bodies can absorb hormones that are circulating and all of that will affect um, some of it will affect genital shape depending on if those differences happen in the womb or if they happen later 
in life. So many people don't discover that they're intersex until later in life, mm-hmm. either when puberty doesn't go the way they expected it to go, or sometimes when they're um, struggling with fertility um, or other differences that happen along the lifespan. So it can happen at many different biological levels. Um, that's I think probably that was what fascinated me, fascinated me the most when I started learning about intersex is that often you just, you can discover it uh, when you go through puberty. And I was like, you know, just to have that realization or to, to not have this understanding or know that this is something that could be possible to then, you know, as an adolescent. Adolescence I, is hard enough. I know, right? I, I met a woman who, you know, she hadn't had her period mm-hmm. and they went to the doctor and they discovered that she didn't have a uterus but she had ovaries and she did not have a vagina. Mm-hmm. And she discovered that at age 17. And I just could not imagine that. Yeah. I was, I, so yep. that when I first learned that, that's what started making me and get so fascinated by sex and gender. And then recognizing that the way we view it is so limited. Mm-hmm. So yeah, what, we, we view things as statistical majorities is really what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, people often wonder how many people have intersex characteristics. And an easy way to think about it is there are about as many intersex people in the world as there are redheads. Mm-hmm. And red hair varies depending on what your ethnic background is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very different in Kenya than it is in Scotland. Um, And certain intersex traits show up in different ethnic groups as well. Um, So it's rare, but it's not so rare. Um, So is your hair naturally red? It is is naturally red. (laughs) (laughs) Your grandmothers had red hair. Yeah. It's Auburn. Yeah, so my hair is Auburn. However, I'm finding many more white hairs these days. Me too. My hair is dark, but the nice thing with comparing to red hair is that if you look historically, many cultures actually have been suspicious or had um, superstitions about people with red hair. Mm. Um, Back in ancient Egypt, they were burned at the stake to try and get rid of the trait in the medieval Europe, they were seen as having red hair from the fires of hell. And so, you know, some of them were burned as witches. So, and many cultures will have, if you pass a redhead, then you got to like spit this way so that, you know, that they're just like bad luck, bad omens. Oh my gosh. And, you know, what it reminds us of is as humans, we really don't have a great track record of treatment of people who are different than the statistical majority. And so we often come across that with fear and suspicion. It's not what God meant things, Mm -hmm. how God wanted people to be because it's a minority trait. If it's 1% of the population, well, is it wrong? Green eyes, they're a genetic mutation. Are they a result of the fall? I mean, I mean, we're getting way too deep already, but it's just a helpful reminder that we we approach um, people with statistically minority experiences or physical traits um, often with fear because we don't understand why they're different from most everybody else. 
I mean, it just goes to show that we are still struggling, right? Like when you look at actually, you know, what's happening today. And I was just in conversation, you know, on the social media about cancel culture and different things like this. And, but it is, it's, it's, it saddens me to look at our history and to know that there's so much that we're still doing. And the fact that we can't shift the mindset of fear over into wonder, Mm. you know, like if we did that, if we would wonder more, and be curious. Mm-hmm. I think that is, I feel like what God really calls us to do. Mm-hmm. So it makes me, I mean, it does, it just makes me sad. And I think, again, learning about the intersex population, when I was a mom, I just uh, had a child, had a boy, and I just think about parents and the decisions they have to make when the baby is born. If we could just get rid of, you know, the boxes. <laughs> all these boxes and the continuation right of having these gender reveal parties and Mm -hmm. all these things I just want those to go away (laughs) you know to end to be like this is not helping I don't think they will though and I guess that's part of the challenge when you do have statistical majorities if 98 percent of the human population does physically you know biologically look typically masculine or typically feminine we're not going to get rid of those boxes because it's just too high of a majority you know often there's an argument from people on the right that sex is binary you know it's supposed to just be two and then there are a lot of people on the left who say no sex is a spectrum Mm -hmm. and actually they're both right and (laughs) this is why I get like nobody's happy with me because I'd say we're all right and we're all wrong at the same time because yes it's a spectrum but it's not an evenly distributed one like the rainbow symbol um maybe we call it a kindergarten drawing (laughs) right (laughs) what do you mean by that like if you look at when preschoolers or kindergartners draw uh-huh. I just think of the colors that they use and things are yeah. all over, but then there's some cement symmetry and there's some mm-hmm. non-symmetry. I don't know. Maybe yeah. you can describe for your listeners two overlapping bell curves, <laughs> which is a little sometimes like, hard to pick. That's not it at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. That's hysterical. I love that. Oh. So what made you get interested in diving deep into studying sex and gender then? Well, I am a biologically typical female and I grew up in white evangelical and fundamentalist churches and Bible camp and Bible college and the culture I grew up in, girls weren't teachers they weren't leaders they didn't teach Sunday school they didn't even pass the offering plate in the church I grew up in Mm -hmm. Um, so as I was trying to figure out as a very devout young person how to serve God without accidentally sinning because I'm a girl Mm -hmm. so you know people are asking me in college to preach like am I allowed to do that you know I'm like wrestling in prayer and in tears and you know I a lot of my girlfriends they in college you know they couldn't wait to you know find a husband and start having babies and I wanted to study philosophy 
um, I wasn't sure I wanted to be a mom. I am a mom now and I love it. But at the time, my interests were just different than a lot of the majority of Christian girls I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was confusing for me. Um, it took me a long time to work through, can women be teachers? Can they be pastors? Um, and then as I did more of that work, trying to understand my own vocation, I was just really unhappy with how theologians would talk about sex differences mm-hmm. because none of it seemed to fit me as you know a devout follower of Jesus. And I, I was like, wait a minute, like the way you talk about women and the theological significance of femininity doesn't match my experience at all as a Christian woman. Yeah. So as someone who is studying theology in seminary and in my doctoral work, I just wanted to find better language, something that was more true. Mm-hmm. And then as I studied Christian history, how theologians throughout history have talked about gender wow, just radically different than today. And so I went to the science to try and find out, is there anything we can say that's true about all men and all women in all cultures (laughs) throughout history, which is why I got into the science. And then I realized the science was so much more complicated than I had been taught in my eighth grade biology class um, or fifth grade sex ed class or both really. So um, I came to the study of sex and gender really from my own struggles about being a woman in a conservative Christian tradition. But when I learned about intersex, of course, as an academic, it opened up things, questions in my mind. But when I met intersex people, when I heard their stories, particularly intersex Christians, um, I just realized that any of the oppression and um, ill treatment I've received as a woman in patriarchal Christianity pales in comparison to the kinds of, um, to the experiences of intersex Christians in the church. And I thought we are not caring for people. We are not loving all of God's children. And then learning that, okay, not only is the science more complicated and history more complicated, even the Bible talks about intersex people. You know, even Augustine talks about intersex people. So there was so much more, you know, to biology, so much more to church history, and so much more even to the Bible than I knew when I started this down this path. Well, that's what I was finding really fascinating when I was watching your documentary with the rabbi and the language that he, the ancient language that he showed and the words that were in there, if you can, my memory is not serving me well. So if you're able to, to remember and say those words, I was just so fascinated by that. Yeah, ancient Judaism, the rabbis developed additional terms for people whose bodies don't fall neatly into the male and female pattern. Um, And you can understand why that would be if circumcision is the sign in your community, rabbis need to know which babies need to be circumcised and which don't. So midwives would call in rabbis to say, okay, we need help making a decision here. Mm -hmm. And so over time, they developed additional categories. The one on the film that the rabbi 
reads is androgynos, which is really someone who falls smack dab in the middle of male and female. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you're not, <laughs> uh, that's, that's where they are. Um, so, but then there are other terms for like a more feminine looking intersex person, mm -hmm. which in Hebrew is the ilonit and a more masculine looking intersex person, which is actually the word eunuch that shows up in the Bible, um, particularly in Jesus's statement in Matthew 19, 12, he talks about eunuchs who've been born that way. And what he's doing is using this ancient additional category created by the rabbis who have as much respect for the book of Genesis right. <laughs> as any Christian fundamentalist I know. Um, and yet they needed language to fit all the people in their community. And here Jesus is using one of those terms. Yeah. Um, he also talks about those who've been made eunuchs in that same passage. And in that case, it would be, um, and there's Hebrew words for all of these as well, but the eunuch who was made to be a eunuch through castration, which was a very common practice, unfortunately, in the ancient world. Many slaves were castrated and used as sex slaves and among other things. Um, so Jesus talks about those two categories in Matthew chapter 19. And so one of the things I did in my book, Sex Difference in Christian Theology, Male, Female, and Intersex in the Image of God was go through basically as many commentaries as I could find, <laughs> ancient and modern, on what the heck is happening when Jesus is talking about this in Matthew 19, 12. Um, so I have like 50 pages on the <laughs> history of the interpretation of that passage. I'm just going to promote your book right now and say every seminary <laughs> theological uh, institution needs to have it. It's just really, um, you've, you've done an excellent amount of research for this book and I, it's comprehensive and very intriguing. So I just think it's, it's wonderful what you've been working on and putting in the world. Thank so, you, it took years. So that's, that's why it has all those details. Right, how long did that take you? Because I mean, I was just really impressed with the amount you know, of research that you have done. Well, it took me probably three, years to write my dissertation. So um, three and a half, if you count like semester earlier where I even discovered intersex. Um, so that was pretty much the second half of my seven years in my doctoral program was writing that book and then finding a publisher and having to rewrite a few sections, add a few more sections. There are certainly things I would improve on the book um, I use language that has now changed because so many terms around gender identity and changes so sex fast, right? is changing. Yeah. So I, I speak of transgendered people rather than transgender people, you know, which I finished the book in 2011 and it was eventually published in 2015. So <laughs> just say, I'm sorry. <laughs> like the, That's what I knew back then. And I think it's important though for people to understand that you know, a lot of people get nervous around having conversations with gender. Um, but I tell people all the time, you know, it changes, it changes constantly. And so it is something that we have to continuously learn about and engage in conversation about and have conversations and ask the questions and, you know, 
I try to let people understand, like, often they feel um, like they can't keep up or they feel upset that they will never know. And I'm like, but it's a conversation and it's okay. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to continuously learn. And that's, that's part of the deal, you know? That's so true. and so great that you have the opportunity to help people like just calm their nervousness around having these conversations and remind them that there's so much we don't know. I mean, the science of sex difference is cutting edge science right now. There's so much that we don't know, particularly around gender uh, sex influences on the brain um, that often show up with gender identity. Um, There is evidence that there are biological underpinnings for gender identity. Certainly intersex, different intersex variations point toward that, but we're not all the way there yet. And so even those of us like you and me, people who are educating in this area, you know, just helping people understand there's still a lot we don't know. And science for sure. Yeah. Um, And so just having that humility, one of the things I loved when I was teaching theology at Gordon College, a little Christian college north of Boston, I was just teaching through systematic theology. And at the end of every course, I would kind of end one of my last lectures, it was my favorite, talk about how we need to get better at saying, I don't know. Right. I said, you all have probably have more questions now, you know, at the end of my class than you did at the beginning. And that's life. That is, you know, so learning to live with unanswered questions, learning to live with things we don't know about. We just need to get better at that. And we need pastors who can admit that from the pulpit and, you know, podcasters like yourselves and other people influencing the public square just to help us be okay saying, I don't know. I have a lot to learn. I think part of that, I want to say comes from the fact that now we have computers in our hands all the time. You know, like we're a culture who feels like we have to know everything or that Mm. when we don't know, right, then that means that something about us is inadequate. And I think that's Mm. the core of it for people is they don't want to feel inadequate. Wow. You know, but then if we can admit, I'm not supposed to know everything, right? Like, I don't think we're supposed to know everything. That's part of why we're here in a community learning with each other. And yeah, we're supposed to engage with one another. Mm-hmm. You know? I tell people I spent three and a half years writing this book so that you don't have to. Exactly. <laughs> so you can do other things with your life. <laughs> I'm writing this book. <laughs> yeah. No, and I'm grateful for it. The word. <laughs> Thanks. So one, one of the things, there's a quote from your documentary, and one of the partic- participants um, said, We are not rare, we are invisible. Mm. Uh, so, from your research and talking with many who are intersex, and now, and since we talked about knowing that this has been around for a long time, mm-hmm. you know, I think often the idea of intersex and transgender people think it's a new thing, but mm-hmm. it's been around forever. So why do you still think that, why do we still treat them like they don't exist? And why do you think the medical community tries to erase their difference? 
Yeah, there's so much in those questions, such an important question. I think, first of all, intersex people are invisible because most of them look like regular people. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not something you're going to know by looking at someone that they're intersex, even looking at a person's genitals. We certainly don't go around looking at other people's genitals, but even there, you're not necessarily going to know. So just the fact that this is, we're dealing with a private aspect of ourselves um, that people aren't gonna necessarily broadcast. That's one of the reasons that it's invisible. But another reason we don't even know about intersex is because, um, there has been so much shame around difference. Mm -hmm. And so when, I mean, you mentioned, you know, you're having your first child and all of the anxiety around that. You know, there's so much anxiety you have as a new parent and then throw in, I'm not sure if my baby's a boy or a girl, mm -hmm. like just panic, right? Um, so the challenge is that as, the medical community has said, wait a minute, don't worry, we can fix it. In fact, they're, they're treating parental anxiety by performing surgeries on healthy children. Mm -hmm. And just realizing, wait a minute, that's not what we do when it's a matter of parental anxiety. You know, you need a social worker more often than you need a surgeon. That's interesting that you say that because I had you know, clearly there's an emotional impact, but the fact that have, are they offering that, you know, that seems like that would be the first thing you do. Hmm. Hey, let's, let's bring someone in for you to talk to, right. <laughs> to learn instead of yeah. go ahead and manipulate their genitals. And when we didn't have that kind of medical technology a hundred years ago, you know, and many centuries in the past, there wasn't that medical option. Right. So the only option was social. And one of my colleagues, a theologian, Susanna Cornwall, who is interviewed in the film, talks about um, talking with older women who were in their 70s, 80s and 90s over in the UK where she lives and how they grew up when kids were born with midwives, with women in the community. And that these women were like, oh, yeah, we knew people who were different and that was OK because it was handled within the community that way, mm -hmm. as opposed to now most babies are born in hospitals and it's a very private affair. And then the first people to encounter the baby are doctors. Yeah. And doctors are trained to look for health problems. That's what they do, you know? That's the nail to their hammer. Um, that's just, they want to treat illness. And so they see differences often through the lens of illness, even when there's not the intersex births are rarely a medical emergency. Mm -hmm. So learning to reframe the first learning, just training obstetricians, <laughs> training nurses um, who work in, you know, neonatal units, um, there's a lot of education that needs to happen, surprisingly, among medical personnel so that their first reaction isn't, whoa, this is a medical emergency, but so that they can stay calm and talk to parents about, yes, this is rare, but it happens and we'll connect you with people, you know, to help you process this and think about this. Um, 
that's the work that we're trying to, the education that we're trying to do, certainly with the documentary that um, you talked about, stories of intersex and faith, we're trying to get as many screenings as we can at universities that have medical schools and religion departments, because we really want to, I mean, one of the physicians in the film says if we could get so that from the first time the page is opened at the day one of medical school, if we can change the medical textbooks, we can change almost everything. Like that we won't have so much um, harm <laughs> that we have to reduce. We can address this properly from the beginning, but there's so much that needs to change in medical schools. Yeah, I was surprised at how little education in medical school happens around sex in general. I think I learned, and I could be wrong, um, but I want to say it was like equivalent to 11 hours worth of mm. education, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe I misheard that, but in any case, when I went to school to study sex, we had physicians who were studying with us, and basically because they didn't get enough sex education, and they mm -hmm. wanted to be, uh, have that education to bring to their patients, um, because within one weekend, we would get 16 hours of credit. Wow. Essentially. Yeah. When you think about it in that sense, that's uh, quite astounding. So, yeah. And one of the doctors in the film says she was a urology student and had made it all the way through her urology coursework to being a resident before she learned anything about differences of sex development or intersex variations. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, so she, she was saying we didn't have any hours, <laughs> which is just, um, it's mind boggling to those of us outside the medical community, but physicians are humans and mm -hmm. there's more than one physician can know about everything in the body. And so even for physicians to like pastors model intellectual humility and say, I didn't know about this. I need to learn more about this um, is a huge um, move that would, again, move us in a better direction. That would be great. So what stories from the intersex community affected you the most? Oh, goodness. So many. I mean, one of my good friends, um, said the first time she shared her story with her women's Bible study, they told her she had just ruined her testimony. Um, and she was sharing her medical history with women who'd known her for years. Um, I don't understand that. That's well, ruined her, her testimony because she shared that she was intersex. Mm -hmm. That's really sad. And her story is in the film, that's Leanne. She shares about being born looking typically masculine, but um, not um, really advancing. Puberty didn't bring further masculinization or feminization. So her body, um, she said basically her puberty came out of a book. And, you know, she now lives as a woman and chose to make that transition. Um, but her body was not clearly male or clearly female, but it was easier for her to transition to female. It says, I, 
I didn't need to be female. It's not that my gender identity was female, but I was, it was too hard to live as someone in the world where people were always questioning my gender. And so being able for her to pass as a woman um, just made her life easier. Some people accuse intersex people or trans people of making gender into this really big deal. Like it's the only thing that matters. But she was saying it was actually society that was making it a big deal for her. And she didn't want her life to revolve around everyone always questioning her gender. Um, But because she had been raised a boy, I think her community said, wait a minute. (laughs) So did you say before that, uh, because you had cut out a little bit, did you say that her puberty came in a bottle is that what she said that's how she jokes about it yeah that her body wasn't going to give her puberty one way or another because her gonads have they have some testicular tissue and some ovarian tissue so they're they are street gonads they don't function like typical ovaries or testes that's fascinating yeah so it's it's like those are go (laughs) should i tell you any more stories go ahead (laughs) just did the one I think some of the ones that break my heart are from Christian parents who after hearing me talk about intersex people in the bible and Christian history just say oh my gosh I wish we had known this 20 years ago because we were so ashamed and so afraid and we just didn't feel like we could talk to anybody especially people in our church And they go through these challenges completely alone, separated from their faith community. And that secrecy, you know, affects a child's psychological health um, so that they internalize shame around that. So, so much could have been um, so much pain and trauma, psychological and physical trauma could have been averted simply had they known more. Mm -hmm. And then the ones that are just heartrending are when I hear from parents who say something like, the doctors told us it was a little thing that they could fix. And so they made my child's genitals look more masculine. And now my child is four, five years old, and they're saying they're a girl. Mm-hmm. Um, so that basically the doctors guessed wrong because they're making educated guesses mm-hmm. um, and they performed genital surgery on a child based on their guess and they guessed wrong. And so now they don't have the physical tissue to work with should the child want to reshape their genitals in a way that matches mm-hmm. their gender identity. So these surgeries that are not medically necessary that try to put people's bodies into one of these pink and blue boxes, like you said, Mm -hmm. then end up ruining this child's life. And then they don't know what to tell to tell their churches. Is their child going to be able to stay in the Christian school that they're in? I mean, all of these questions. and not to or if they had simply waited on surgery until the child was older, waited to see how their gender developed, they could have avoided that. And it also creates so much scar tissue that I know that it then takes away some of the sensitivity that we have in our genitals and that mm-hmm. can then decrease pleasure for them in the future. And it's- And cause pain. And cause pain. It's a lot. And then yeah. I- the whole idea of too, of, uh, I think one of the men in your documentary talked about how he had to have multiple surgeries 
Mm-hmm. And it, the thing, and you know, a lot of the times I don't think people recognize that um, when you're in a medical facility a lot and being poked and prodded and everything that affects your erotic template and it affects the way that touch you respond to touch because mm. your body is being manipulated so much um, despite you wanting that, you know? And so it can, the psychological aspect of that and the phys- the physiological aspect of that is a lot for them. Yeah, there's a ton of medical trauma in the intersex community mm-hmm. where intersex folks, many times they don't want to go to the doctor for if they have the flu um, because they just had so much trauma around doctors doing things without their consent, doing things without telling them, um, just so many traumas that then they suffer from lack of medical care for things that wouldn't necessarily be a big deal. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing one person talk about they had a hernia, but they didn't want to get it f- fixed because they didn't trust the surgeon to leave their gonads alone. They thought when they were in there to fix the hernia that they would take out their testes because this was a woman um, with androgen and sensitivity mm-hmm. who has testes and that um, is very common intersex variation, not the medical emergency, um, but she didn't trust the doctor wow. um, to do a surgery that she hadn't consented to. Mm. That's hard. So, um, so those are some of the stories that <laughs> have affected me the most. And isn't that in relation to that famous study by, I think, Dr. Money, correct? Is that his name? Who John Money, yep. And tried to do nature over nurture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And many of his patients then ended up committing suicide. Yeah. Um, and he's, but he's the one who really started studying intersex, you know, and, you know, I think many of these doctors, they don't set out to cause harm. They are doing what they think is best based on their assumptions about the world and their training. Um, But learning, it's what's frustrating is the medical community who say, well, the people who are complaining are just the squeaky wheels. Most people are satisfied with our medical care and there just isn't the evidence to prove that physicians have been very slow to listen to the testimonies of intersex people who've been working for decades for changes in medical practice. Actually had the privilege of sharing our documentary with an ethics committee here in Boston that advises local Boston hospitals, including Boston Children's Hospital. And our documentary was one of the resources that they that influenced them on this year-long study for them to recommend to children's hospital that they stop certain kinds of gender genital surgeries. And that was announced last year in June, 2020. Um, So this is one of the premier children's hospitals in the world. And they're only now listening and making changes to their standards of care. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Yeah, for sure. But that's great that you've had an influence on that already. That's really cool. 
So we've already talked about a little bit, you know, kind of just based on uh, the story you shared with the woman in her Bible study and that she said society is who made it hard for her. So how do we change our society around sex and gender? What would you say to this? This is a great question because it's really uh, my journey as a, um, my career journey kind of follows this path. So I am an analytical thinker and so I need to research and read a lot of books. And then I lecture and I write books and I write journal articles and I think this is how we're gonna change the church. And I realized that no matter how great an argument I make, how well I communicate it, if people's hearts aren't open to hearing something different, it just bounces right off. Mm -hmm. And when I started speaking with my friend Leanne, who's in the documentary, she would share her story. And then I would talk about, wait a minute, intersex is in the Bible and in church history. And here's the science. And all of a sudden, people were so much more mm -hmm. attentive and willing to ask questions that they weren't willing to ask before. So I really think stories are the way we have to begin hearing people's stories. I mean, the work you do is helping people reframe our own stories. Well, this is a big cultural story that we need to reframe. But it's in hearing these personal stories um, that I think people's hearts are opened in such a way that then they can hear about the science, they can hear about the Bible, they can hear about church history and these other ways of thinking about sex differences. So it's been humbling for me as an academic to realize, you know, the people who persuade the most are personal stories, which is why I created the documentary. Yeah. But I think there are a lot of people too who want to then understand the science and need to understand, well, how do I fit this into my understanding of the Bible? Which is why I then took that documentary and broke it up into six different videos where I'm all teaching, you know, a lot of the things that are in my books um, and basically doing that kind of work when I go to different churches and do workshops with them in a six video series for like adult small group churches. So trying to make this material as accessible as possible That's with keeping those stories as key and then surrounding them with, okay, how do we talk about things that are hard? How do you make safe space in your small group to talk about stuff that people are nervous talking about? So it teaches um, facilitating hard conversations and then walks people through different stories and then different passages in scripture. Um, so that's what I'm doing to try and change <laughs> minds, but it's been, it's a really great question because it's, um, it's not easy. I feel every time, you know, I'm big on story. I love story. And it's, I just go back to like that Jesus, he was onto something, right? <laughs> That's how he taught. Another thing we can learn from Jesus. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm a terrible storyteller. <laughs> I think in outlines. <laughs> so I used to say that. I mean, my I've, I've learned through film, you know, telling stories. So it's been good. It's been humbling <laughs> and fun. Right. Well, it was beautifully done again, I should say. 
Um, so how has your research then changed your idea of God? Oh, that's a great big question too. I think, um, again, I come from a very, very conservative church tradition. It's even hard for me as an adult to hear other pronouns other than he used for God. They're always going to strike me viscerally as not right. And yet I know that God is spirit as the Bible says, God does not have a body and these sex characteristics are bodies. Mm. You know, Jesus is, you know, had biological characteristics, but if we're talking about God, the Trinity, um, then we're, we don't need sexed pronouns. I think learning Hebrew helped me understand that there are only male and female pronouns in Hebrew. Mm. So there wasn't a third gender pronoun available for talking about God. Mm. Um, and in, as English speakers, we have a lot of trouble differentiating between grammatical gender and natural gender. So grammar, like if you learn Hebrew or if you learn French, in French, a table is feminine. Right. You know, in English, we would call it the table and it. We would use the grammatical neuter um and we know but in in french as in hebrew you know noun like objects are gendered just through the grammar of the language and so as english readers of a hebrew text we see he and assume that it has some relationship to an actual like physical gender as opposed to realizing, no, this is just how the grammar of that language works. So part of that I had to, go ahead. That'd be a whole other fascinating thing to study, you know, to, to understand how language developed and how it then became where there's feminine and masculine throughout, which I don't have enough knowledge of at all, but I think that would be another fascinating. Yeah, I love studying languages. I mean, I'm just, I'm a nerd. <laughs> I loved I, one of my masters at, from seminary is in biblical languages, um, and I, I have found that fascinating um, and challenging. Um, an article I wrote, anyway, I could, I could talk for way too long on this one question, um, but uh, trying to um, just decouple my imagination from the masculine um, for God has been a challenge, but certainly something that um, has been good for me. I like to say that um, God is not um, gendered, but um, genderful in some ways, like, like all of the gender traits that we can imagine, like God is these things and yet in a way that is like beyond gender um so there's just go ahead (laughs) (laughs) I just like to think you know how God said let's create them in our image and Mm -hmm. you think about all the people we have so clearly (laughs) Mm -hmm. the image is vast right that's how I like to think of it Yeah, but that's where a lot of people get hung up because then they hear, let us create humankind in our image, male and female. 
And so a lot of Christians will say, well, what God intended was just male or just female. Um, and then, you know, so a lot of what we have to do in, you know, in the, you know, books I've written and, and in this new curriculum is trying to look again at Genesis and say, wait a minute, <laughs> there are a lot of things in creation that don't end up in that first chapter of Genesis. And we don't necessarily think that they aren't part of God's design. Mm -hmm. um, so. And I also like pointing out too about how when we start in the womb, we all have this same genital tissue. And so we have homogenous parts. Mm -hmm. They all stem from the same thing. <laughs> so we're actually a lot more mixed together, I like to say, you know, I always think about blending and pulling and being a part of, if we think of one flesh, like we all essentially come from one mm -hmm. flesh. So there's a mixing in a way. Yeah. And that was one of the things that I thought was so significant putting together the science with the theology, because so many theologians would talk about this radical difference between male and female. They use the fancy word ontological difference, like the beingness mm -hmm. of maleness mm -hmm. is radically different than the beingness of female. And look at what you just said. And I say, actually, we're made of the same stuff <laughs> completely. <laughs> like our, we all start the same. And then these genes and these, you know, hormones act on those tissues and that's when the differentiation happens. Mm -hmm. So our theology was based off of bad science. Well, a lot of our theology goes back, you know, 2000, 3000 years. So of course we're going to struggle to then adapt. What are we learning more about human sex differentiation now and then how does that change the way we have talked about sex difference as christians so yeah. that's the work in theology that i have tried to do is challenge theologians to you know bring the best from their particular christian tradition into dialogue with the most current science and say okay if god is the god of all truth there shouldn't be a problem here. We're the ones who have to figure out yeah. <laughs> like, how to talk about this. Um, so That's yeah, there's just so many things there. Well, we are almost running out of time already, if you can imagine. Sadly. <laughs> this has been fun. But so I am curious then, what story for you are you currently reframing? I think it's a very basic story. I think it's the story of what makes a good day. Mm. Um, I was diagnosed with a six centimeter meningioma, which is a non-cancerous tumor on the lining of my brain uh, mm. in the summer of 2019. And so, you know, I had been a healthy functioning, you know, adult. And all of a sudden I wasn't anymore and I had to have surgery and I had to have, you know, three months of radiation, lost all my hair, lost my ability to drive, lost my ability to just make it through the day. 
Um, And so I've been on this long journey of, you know, health challenges and having to reconsider, like, what is a good day? You know, is a good, is my, is a good day when I get stuff done? I mean, that was my personality. That's certainly my training, you know, work hard, study hard, you know, write things, produce things, teach things. Um, and then having to not do any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, like, how do I understand a good day anymore? What, how do I judge myself and my value mm-hmm. in the world? And it's been really healing and really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm still on this journey where I, I can't get through the day without lying down, you know, for an hour or two every day. That makes it a little difficult to have your typical full-time job. Um, so those are some of the stories, my own stories that I'm learning to reshape. I'm an Enneagram one. So I'm a <laughs> perfectionist worker, worker, worker to change the world. And um, perfectionist and all of that. So it's been humbling and yet really, really healing for me as a person to go through this difficult health journey. It's a new understanding of rest Mm -hmm. that sometimes we're not, we don't want to enter in, I would say. That's a lot. Well, Hopefully that's not too heavy a note to. No, <laughs> I mean, I'm, thank you for you know being vulnerable and sharing because mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I think what we're learning through this pandemic and stuff is mm-hmm. how fragile life is, mm-hmm. and that you know I was just on a walk before this started, and I am reframing how I think about things myself, and I think recently more than ever I just say thank you God for one more day. Mm. you know because who knows just where you know where things like that pop up and all that so but the ability to go on a walk I can do that now I couldn't do that for a while Um, so you know those simple things like you're talking about being grateful for this day or you know this small thing here it does make a difference with how we walk through each of our days especially during this pandemic yeah man and I don't even want to think about how that has affected (laughs) you know like that too this being medically you know fragile or have gone through stuff and having to you know navigate that that's a lot too I'm sure but I'm not where I was so I have a lot to be thankful for (laughs) well I will say that you look just radiant to me so that's because they had a nap (laughs) the resting is working it looks like the healing is thank you you look radiant and joyous so um well I just want to thank you again um again for spending this time with me and I I am in awe of the work that you have done and the research you've put in and for a person who's not analytical more of this creative swirly person I'm grateful that you've done that research and put the work in so 
Well, you can obviously do both. Um, so thank you for inviting me to this. Thanks for the work that you're doing. Um, I think from my perspective, particularly around education with sex differences and gender, um, we just, we need more people like you spreading the word. And, uh, so it's great to meet you and talk with you. Yeah.